when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs, you might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio, a web platform with everything you need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Design teams get a ton of smart features that can take the grind out of web creation without it costing per-pixel control. Dev teams, you get a zero-setup, developer-first environment, combined with an AI code assistant and your preferred IDE for rapid deployment. Search Wix Studio today to explore the full range of features. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to Julia Alexander. Julia used to be a reporter at The Verge who covered streaming TV. She is now the senior strategy analyst at Parrot Analytics, a company that helps streaming companies do better at streaming. She also hosts a podcast called Downstream, which is about the business of streaming. So Julia was the perfect guest to come on and talk about the state of the streaming industry. We're a couple years into Hollywood's big shift to streaming entertainment, and it's clear that it's reoriented the industry. Apple just won an Oscar for Best Picture for a film called Coda it bought out of Sundance. Amazon now owns MGM. Netflix, which has long been dominant, is investing in games and hinting at advertising to grow its revenue base. One idea that comes up on Decoder over and over again is that how we distribute media has a huge influence on the media itself, what gets made and who gets to make it. So Julie and I talked about what kinds of movies and shows are getting made now that the streamers are in their ascendancy. And of course, there's Disney and Warner Media, two legacy entertainment giants in the middle of huge transformations. Disney has a new CEO in Bob Chapek, who is reorganizing the company around streaming. And in the process, he's irritated big stars like Scarlett Johansson and unsettled Disney's own major studios like Pixar by sending its movies directly to Disney Plus instead of theaters. On the flip side, though, Encanto became a sensation only after it left theaters and hit the Disney Plus app. So I wanted to ask Julia how that shift at Disney was going and how Chapek's restructure was playing out after the story tenure of his predecessor, Bob Iger. Decoder is a podcast about org charts, after all, and Chapek is changing the Disney org chart. I also wanted to spend some time on Warner Media, which is about to get spun out of AT&T and merged into Discovery. Why did AT&T even buy Warner Media? And why did Discovery want it now? What's going to happen to HBO Max and the newly launched CNN Plus? Are we just building up a more expensive version of the cable bundle? Julie and I have been talking about these companies for years, so this was a pretty fun and loose conversation. There is a lot going on inside this world. I do have some quick disclosures before we start. NBC Universal, which runs Peacock, is a minority investor in Vox Media. Vox Media as a whole has shows on basically all these streaming platforms, and The Verge itself 
is working on a show for Netflix. That said, I don't have any inside information as to what is going on inside these streaming companies at large. I just like making the disclosures when it's appropriate. Okay, let's get into it. Julia Alexander, Senior Strategist at Parrot Analytics. Here we go. Julia Alexander, you once covered streaming here at The Verge. You are now the Senior Strategy Analyst at Parrot Analytics. You also co-host Downstream, which is a podcast about the business of streaming. Welcome to Decoder. Thank you for having me. I want to do a check-in on kind of the whole streaming TV industry. You're a perfect person to talk about that. There's a lot of change in the streaming industry happening right now. But first... I kind of understood your job when you worked at The Verge. I didn't poke at it too much, but I had a feel for what it was you did all day. What do you do as a senior strategy analyst at Parrot Analytics? The majority of my day is split between two things. So the mornings, I tend to do a lot of research projects. So it's pouring over different data that we're pulling via SQL and looking at trends and kind of trying to figure out what is happening in the industry and trying to figure out what our clients can use, you know, from a strategic standpoint to better their companies and their divisions, which tend to focus on streaming. And then the latter part of my day in the afternoon is spent with a lot of clients across the entertainment and media landscape and helping them try to make sense of all of this right now. Are you allowed to reveal your clients? Can you give us a general sense of what kind of companies come out to hire a firm like Parrot or hire you? Sure. I can't talk about my clients, but across the board, we have certain clients like Disney. We work with Warner Media. We work with Amazon. We work with a bunch of different companies. Again, mostly focusing on their direct-to-consumer efforts, but some trying to focus still on linear and some looking at other questions like what programs to license or acquire or what type of series should they be making for underserved audiences. So we pull a lot of that data and then help them in that spectrum. So one of the things that I think is really interesting about streaming in both a positive and negative way, is that there's more data about what people are watching, who those people are, what granular elements of any show appeal to them. And then the flip side is it doesn't seem like anybody knows how to measure anything and all the measurements are incompatible and not comparable directly. How do you make sense of that? Well, I think we have to examine what has shifted with the measurement system. So if we look at what worked 20, 30 years ago, what worked under the kind of the Nielsen method, it was this idea of what worked for advertisers. So it was entirely based on consumption patterns. And you could look at a very t fixed schedule, 8 p.m., 9 p.m., Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever it might be, and Nielsen can say, you know, 12 million people tuned in to watch Law & Order, and this is great for advertisers, it's great for NBC because they get to charge higher rates. But that relationship between customers changes once it's direct to consumer. Now what you're trying to figure out is the affinity, the adoration that certain customers have for certain shows, for certain characters, for certain franchises. So that way you can convince them to pay you 10 to $15 a month, if not more in the next coming years. And so I think when we look at what we're trying to figure out, the subject of demand is how does demand in an attention economy, which is a term everyone uses, but really how do you take that and monetize it? And it's more than just consumption, it's a lot of who are making TikTok edits, who's on Twitter rallying people, um, who is figuring out ways to upload episodes of shows for people who don't want to subscribe, but they want to be able to engage <laughs> in this type of series. And so we use that and go to the companies and basically say, 
if you have their adoration, if you have this concept of love, which is hard to quantify, but is extremely important to the conversation of indirect to consumer relationships, then you're going to be okay. You're going to pull out with continued customer acquisition and you're going to see lower uh, churn rates and higher retention. Right. So basically you're a streaming company, thevergestreamingcompany.com. That's our new service. And I've got one thing, one huge exclusive series to launch with, but I know it's going to go away after a year or two, after two seasons. My huge worry is everyone's going to churn off and stop paying me once that season is over, once that second season is over. And you're saying, okay, but to launch new series, you have to make sure people love them so they stay. Yeah, I mean, it's the Apple equation to a certain extent where Apple TV Plus is batting above its average with originals, where you think of how few shows they actually have compared to everyone else. And the demand for it is pretty high and they're successful. They have, you know, Ted Lasso wins a bunch of Emmys. They have Coda, which just won Best Picture. Like the Apple TV Plus has these what we call high acquisition titles, which is customers will come sign up for them. What they don't have, which is just as important, is the catalog demand. They don't have any market share when it comes to actual catalog, which is when people are done with Coda, they want to watch, you know, Seinfeld, they want to watch New Girl, whatever it might be. They don't have that. And so I think that goes into the question with Apple, to an extent with Disney+, Plus, which also has a really small catalog market share-wise compared to its competitors. There's this question of how much do you want to be in this game? Because if you want to be in this game, you have to have the 10 to 20,000 title back catalog that Warner has, that NBC has, that Paramount has. Um, And so that's the situation that we see. But on the flip side, Paramount Plus and Peacock, which are from Paramount and NBC Universal, they don't have the big titles really that are bringing people in that people are saying, oh, well, I'll sign up for this. You know, half of Peacock stuff is available on Hulu. And people are mm-hmm. like, well, Hulu has titles I actually want to watch. So I'm going to sign up for it and watch my NBC shows there. So this is the, this moment we're in where you're trying to find that balance. But for the new services, they really need something exciting to bring those first customers in in the first place. And that's kind of where you're focused. It sounds like the, the equation here is you need some new stuff which generates a lot of hype. It seems like what you all measure as social media activity is a proxy for affection. You need that stuff to bring people in, convert people into subscribers, and then you need a huge catalog to retain them so they don't stop paying you. Yeah, and then a big portion of my job is looking at various usage in households and demographics. So if I look at a certain audience for a certain platform, if I'm looking at HBO Max, my recommendation is going to say, you have no shows for teenage girls. Teenage girls love consuming content. They love making content about the content they're watching. It's a huge market, and it's a cheap market, relatively speaking, because it's a lot of reality. It's a lot of romance. It's a lot of, um, to an extent, action adventure, but not really. And so when we look at the data points, there is this huge crossover with uh, underserved audiences, which tends to be like young women of color too, who aren't served as well as men tend to be. And so whenever I talk to certain companies, a lot of the recommendations I bring up is, You want to make another Star Wars because you think Star Wars is the way to make a billion dollars, but Star Wars exists. Like people who want Star Wars are going to go to Disney Plus and they're going to get it. What doesn't exist is a huge, there's a huge market with a hole in it where you could just pivot towards focusing on them for a little bit and you're going to bring in your subscribers. You're going to reduce your churn and you're then by that metric, you're then going to be able to increase your um, subscription fee because you have low churn, right? You can take that opportunity. Do you think that message is resonating? I realize this is like your job, so you're going to tell me it's resonating. But like, again, I think this is the challenge of the whole industry. The numbers are telling people where the money is, 
And yet the market doesn't seem to be moving in that direction as fast as you would expect. I think with a lot of issues in the industry, it's a communication issue. And I don't just mean as in between a boss and someone else via email. There's this idea of what can work and what will work versus what may work. And because they are promising two to three times the growth on these streaming services that are not profitable, but they're telling the street, you know, this is our future, so we have to be profitable, their thing is we got to go big. And so we're going to do the big adaptation of the big IP, and we're going to be in this place for $100 million, $120 million, and we're going to own that. And instead of it, it's like you can do what Netflix did really well in 2014, 2015, which was taking a lot of chances on content no one else kind of wanted to make and building its audience there because there were huge audiences who were vastly underserved. The way that I kind of tell clients to think of their platforms is not necessarily as an entertainment service. It's a um, vertical of discovery. It is a place for people to come and be introduced to something that they don't even necessarily know that they want to watch, that they might be interested in. And once they do, now you can open them up to a whole new world of content that is cheaper to make. Um, Animation and anime is a big one and kind of really build up space there where no one else wants to. But to your point, that message is lost when everybody is trying to make the next Marvel, the next DC. And it's it's such a limited amount of companies who can do that from a rights perspective. And also the interest in that is going to target the same group of people over and over again. You have to expand beyond them. We need to take a quick break, but when we get back, we're going to talk about what is going on with Disney. The Bobs are fighting. Julia is going to help us make sense of it all. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month. Go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this podcast comes from Hims. It can be challenging for men to speak about their health, and whether that's a fear of being vulnerable or just wanting to keep things private, there are just some things we would just rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Hims is a men's healthcare brand looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash decoder. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. 
Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash decoder for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. We're back. Let's jump into Disney. Juliet, before the break, you brought up Marvel. Obviously, the Disney acquisition of Marvel under former CEO Bob Iger was a huge success story. We're now in, what, what is it, phase 45 of Marvel movie <laughs> cinematic un- universe. I actually think it'd be, it would be better for Disney if this phase was a failure. I just, I'm going to put that out there. Like The previous three phases that ended with Avengers Endgame, huge success. Like It would be good for that company if they didn't just have this thing to milk, if they had to pivot. And I think that kind of brings us into like the current state of Disney. There was a Bob, Bob Iger. There's a new Bob, the CEO, Bob Chapek. You and I have discussed the many Bobs of the industry <laughs> when you were at The Verge on The Verge cast many times. But Chapek was Bob Iger's handpicked successor. He's now the guy. Iger's out of the picture. It doesn't seem like they like each other anymore. And the kind of the flashpoint was this bill in Florida, the Don't Say Gay bill, which limits how educators are allowed to discuss sexuality and family structures in schools in extremely ambiguous ways, ways that probably overstep because of the ambiguity of the language in the bill. Iger, it seems pretty obvious, would have spoken up against the bill. Disney is a huge force in Florida. Chapek did not do this. His employees walked out because he did not speak up loudly. He apologized to employees. Now Disney is going to lobby against this bill. The Republican government of Florida says they're going to punish Disney in all kinds of ways. It seemed, frankly, unconstitutional, right? Like using the power of the state to take away Disney's protections under Florida law or to argue that we should amend the copyright terms of the United States, which is what some Republican politicians are now arguing. All that seems crazy. But at the heart of it, you had how Iger would have done it and you had how Chapek is doing it. And that seems to have led to a rift between the two. Right. So there are a multitude of issues within the succession that has happened between Bob Iger and Bob Chapek. And I think a really good way to think of it is Jack Welch and Jeff Immelt at GE. When uh, Jack stepped down, he stayed around for an extra year, and then um, Immelt messed up. Well, he'll say he messed up around the early <laughs> earnings, and you know he projected a $5 billion revenue, I believe, and it came in at like $3.2 billion. And so then Jack goes on publicly to say, you know, like, I wouldn't have done it this way, and he's very invested in this company he led for 20 years. And that puts Jeff Immelt in a really interesting position where he's like, I don't want to go up against the guy who led this company, who's beloved, but also it's my turn. I want to do what I'm going to do with this company. And that's very much where Iger and Chapek are, where Iger is still, I believe, Disney's largest single shareholder um, with 500,000 shares, about $71 million these days, um, which is a huge deal. So he's still in the company regardless (laughs) and in a very big way. And then you have Chapek, who is uh, fundamentally is so different from Bob Iger. Bob Iger had this amazing emotional intelligence. He was able to really connect with talent. He believed in having debates with a lot of his executives and people in his C-suite. He wanted to have this kind of constant conversation about how to do things. Bob Chapek kind of surrounds himself with handpicked people, which is not uncommon, but who are relatively new to working with talent, who are new to representing Disney at a very, very public level, and who, most importantly, are new to understanding 
how to view Disney and how to carry Disney as a brand, not just as a company, but as a brand who really resonates with consumers in a way that very few companies do. You can compare it to Apple, I think, where there's Mm -hmm. this genuine adoration for not just the product, but for the company itself. So when we think about that, the fact that there's all these things happening, there are three big issues. The one is how Bob Chapek seemingly communicates with his staff uh, and with the the greater public. So when we think about the don't uh, say gay bill, Bob Chapek from the get-go does not really communicate with people at Disney, many of whom belong to the LGBTQ community, many who are allies of the community, many who just very much support it. Um, He does not communicate that he's not going to take a public stance, that Disney is not going to take a public stance. In previous years, Iger would have taken a stance, um, and Disney also probably would have taken a public stance. Instead, he says, our content is good enough to show that we support the LGBTQ community. Except that it's not, because in China and in other countries, they get rid of any scenes that have LGBTQ moments. This is an ongoing issue within the Disney um, company. It's an ongoing issue within the studios at Disney who are trying to kind of fight this change. That's one. Two, you have Bob Chapek really arguing to some extent with the leaders of the different studios and the different divisions at his company because he takes away something very boring called P&L which basically means they are no longer in control of their budgets. The person in control of their budgets is a guy named Kareem Daniel, who's his right-hand man. He's been his right-hand man since Kareem Daniel interned for him as an MBA student many, many, many years ago. And he goes, you're in charge of all of these kind of creative fields, and you're going to be in charge of the budget, which does not jive well for Disney, a company where each division was given control of their budget. Mm -hmm. And three, which all leads to this point, is that Bob Chapek is in a really... A difficult position of trying to make Disney a legacy company of yesterday into a legacy company of tomorrow. And that means becoming more and more like a tech company rather than a traditional media and entertainment company. And so he runs it the way that arguably some tech companies might, where he breaks up the content production and the distribution and he goes in and he says, this is how it's going to work. We're focusing on streaming. We're focusing on the metaverse. We're focusing on how to get into these different positions. But all of these issues happen at like the same time. And so it seems like Bob Chapek is losing control of the kingdom versus Bob Iger had control over it. But what I think gets lost in that is that Bob Chapek is just over two years into his tenure as a CEO. His first job was pulling the company out of the pandemic and focusing on how to just survive it. And now he's being tasked with carrying the company uh, very publicly in a way that generates support from the shareholders, that should, from the consumers and from his employees. And that's easier said than done, especially for someone who's so new to the role. I feel like this pattern of the visionary CEO who leaves and then hands it over to the the best operator of his crew instead of another visionary is fairly common. I would actually make the direct comparison to Apple, like you just made it, right? Steve Jobs is the visionary. He hands over the company to Tim Cook, who's an operator. Tim Cook is massively successful as a CEO if you measure the business performance of Apple, obviously. But no one's running around saying Tim Cook is a product visionary. I think he's been good at carrying the cultural legacy and the the um, moral position of Apple as well. I, I don't think there's any question there. But no, no one thinks that Tim Cook invented the AirPods, right? Like, it's just not the role we ascribe to him. Do you think Chapek is a creative visionary the way that Iger was? Because that was where Iger's credibility came from, is that the creatives all believed in him. 
Exactly. And no. And I also think Chapek would argue that he's not a creative visionary in the way Bob Iger was, which is fine in a tech world where your major concern is the product and this kind of consumer experience in a very um, intimate way if we think of how devices in our lives exist, which I know you do, you think about quite often. (laughs) Um, But Chapek is this guy who is tasked with moving Disney as a creative company into a tech-oriented role while remaining very, very in line with creatives because it's the creative power that makes Disney what it is. The issue, really, if we look at Scarlett Johansson and the lawsuit that came up when she sued Disney for how she felt she was treated with Black Widow and it moving to Disney Plus during the pandemic— That was the first moment that people realized this is not an Iger. And that's going to become an issue when Disney is fighting for top talent for its franchises, for its new franchises, for what it's trying to do, um, especially at one of the most revolutionary, both in a positive but also in a negative way within the theatrical landscape, within the studio landscape that Disney really built itself on. This idea of where do movies exist and how do we compensate talent and how do we think about the power of a movie in a theater versus what it looks like if we send it directly to Disney Plus, which is something that's happening with Pixar a lot, where a lot of their movies are being sent to Disney Plus. And that leads to jokes about Pixar being the next direct-to-video brand for Disney, which is a studio that costs them $7 billion and really pulled (laughs) Disney animation out of the, the black in many ways. And then we see this as well with the Don't Say Gay Bill. There's a disconnect between how Chapek views his fiduciary duty, which is promising the street and his shareholders, like we're going to get to 230, 260 million subscribers by 2024, which is a daunting promise. It's a daunting projection. And at the same time, I'm going to carry the brand that is Disney that stands up for the right reasons, that stands up in political and social issues and humanitarian issues, that engages with artists and creatives and and really understands how to talk to artists and creatives. Because talking to distributors and your executive team very different from talking to someone who has poured their heart into a role or into directing or into writing a film. And that is something he didn't have too much experience with. He didn't come up through the studio on the creative side. He came up on the distribution side. And so I think, to your point about Tim Cook, it may make Chapek a good CEO in five years when the Disney is really in the middle of this move to becoming a, a big tech platform or or the idea of tech being more integrated with its actual core identity. But until then, he's still the head of a creative company known for some of the best creative teams in the world. And unless you can connect those together the way Iger did towards the end of his career, where he really started to get into the streaming space and figure out what the next move was, it's always going to be a tough battle internally and then externally. And that's when you have questions from shareholders and the board come into play about, is this the right move? Is this the right guy? And I think he needs time to prove himself. And I think he needs time to get out of all of these situations that he's found himself in. But it is a a concern for people who really support Disney because they're so used to Iger. And Iger is a tough CEO to best, no matter who took over. I don't know that time solves the Republican Party going to war with your company on culture war issues Mm -hmm. in an election year. So let's bracket that. (laughs) Politics in America is now about the culture war entirely. There's no solving it for any CEO and he's just got to deal with it. And that might limit his market, but it probably won't because they're Disney and they're going to keep making MCU movies. So like we, I I think it's safe to bracket it. 
let's talk about what you described as becoming a tech company. I hear that, and I think it's great for these companies to describe themselves as tech companies, but what they are really describing is distribution via app on smart TV platforms. They're not talking about tech in any other sense, right? They're not going to put out mobile phones, right? Like they're, they're talking about, we have an app and that's going to be our, become our distribution platform and that will change the business. Is there something I'm missing there or is that really it? No, that's it. When we look at the way Disney kind of wants to bring itself into this tech equation and the way that arguably Netflix started off as a tech company and now feels very much like a media entertainment company. And this is a debate that every CEO hates it's like, you know, what are you? Are you a tech company? Are you a media company? And they'll just say, hopefully we're a profitable company. But if we look at the Disney move, it's much more difficult for that company because it has been operating very similarly for decades, where there's this idea of who is in control of the budget, who's in control of green lighting, who's in control of all of these different issues that are now kind of being funneled up to one person who was never in any of these processes, but who is Bob Chapek's right-hand man. This is a lesson that actually was going to be implemented under Bob Iger when Bob Iger spoke to Robert Kinsel, who um, is the, I believe, the still chief business officer over at YouTube. He used to be at Netflix for many, many years. And he basically told them, you can't have your content team and your distribution team on the same team. It just doesn't work. You're going to run into too many issues. It's going to be too many delays. Instead, you have to kind of funnel it up and split it off. This is some reporting that came out, I think, in CNBC, that as Iger was thinking about doing Disney+, Plus, he went and talked to Kinsel, who is, as you said, the chief business officer at YouTube and previously at Netflix. And Kinsel's advice to Bob Iger was, you have a team that makes the movies, the content, and then you have a team that runs your app, and they cannot be the same team. And this, the way you just said it, it seems to be now received wisdom in the industry. You said it as though it's obvious. It is not obvious to me. Why do those have to be different teams? I also don't understand why they, but from what I understand or from what the issue that comes with it is that if you have one person in charge of making a decision for the platform, you don't have to run into all this red tape about who is going to green light what for what different network. So the big issue that came out was at the time when Kevin Mayer, who oversaw a bunch of the acquisitions at Disney, then left and he went to TikTok for a little bit. Now he has his own company under Blackstone. He was overseeing Disney Plus. And if he wanted to take a show and he he would go, I'm greenlighting it. It's going to Disney Plus. I'm in control of it. But then you'd have different executives like Peter Rice, who's a very, very senior executive at Disney, oversees their TV division. And Peter Rice would say, well, I'm going to greenlight it and I want it for ABC or I want it for whatever it might be. By taking away that power, by stripping it and saying, this person is going to decide where the show goes, you just have to make the show, that takes away a lot of control that a lot of executives like, and specifically at the Disney company, Peter Rice and John Landgraf, who oversees FX, they really like that control. They like being able to say, I'm going to greenlight this, and it's specifically going to go to FX, or it's going to go to ABC, and I'm going to be in control of everything from the budget to the production to uh, whatever it might be. And instead, Disney is saying, you get to create the show and you can greenlight it, which is what Bob Chapek gave them the ability to do. But Kareem Daniel is going to decide where it goes. He's going to decide if this is a Hulu show, if it's an FX show, if it's a Disney Plus show. And I think what that gets into within the entertainment industry is a lot of bruised ego and a lot of 
trying to figure out what your role is within your own team, within, within your own vertical, and then within the greater company itself. And this was something that did not exist at Disney before. This was something that every person who oversaw their own division had complete P&L control, which was everything from creative to budget. And that is basically stripped from them because Bob Chapek and Bob Iger as well said, we want to be able to focus on streaming. We want to be able to focus on Disney Plus, And we want to be able to have people in charge who can say, no, no, I'm taking this. It's going here. This is our future. At the end of the day, every Decoder episode is about org charts. This is like a real theme of our show. Like we are now just into the org chart of Disney and the trade-offs that that contains. Let's apply that to Pixar. The idea that Pixar is going to become a direct-to-video animation business, it's a meme. I don't know if it's a totally fair meme because the Pixar movies are still all very good. But the last three movies have skipped theatrical release. They go straight to Disney+. Plus. That causes some tension because the theater is still seen as, you know, the most auspicious place to release a movie. The problem is that people aren't going to movie theaters. How does that play out? So the long question was always, are theaters necessary for franchise making? And franchise making, very big deal to Disney, arguably the biggest deal to the biggest company, is can we make a franchise out of this because we operate a flywheel effect, and if we can sell a bunch of Encanto merch or get a kid to go to an Encanto food stand in Disney World and then they watch Encanto 2, we're thriving. Like, we have a whole self-fulfilling prophecy. So to understand the Pixar equation, I think we really need to break down some very quick Disney Plus facts, which is Disney Plus currently 130 million subscribers globally, about 43 million in the U.S. Um, ARPU is about $6.68 in the U.S., ARPU which is ARPU is good. average revenue per user. <laughs> average revenue per user is about $6.68 in the U.S. It's up about 15% year over year. And churn, which is how many customers they're losing, is relatively low at about 3.7%. And the average industry average is about 5%. The only company with lower churn than Disney Plus is uh, Netflix. So... With that said, when we look at Pixar and the question of are families going to theater still, is family entertainment underperforming, which it was as of a few months ago, Disney goes, we have these movies that we know will engage kids that we're pretty sure families will sign up for the service if they haven't already, and we could possibly get some new fans out of it. If we move it to Disney+, Plus, we can track the engagement. We can see if we can build franchises out of this. For Disney, and Bob Chapek has said this on calls many, many times, on earnings calls, where he refers to a lot of it as experimentation, where they're trying to figure out what makes sense in the market? Do you go to theaters and you're there for 30 to 45 days and then you pull it off and go directly to Disney Plus? Or do you go directly to Disney Plus? And so the thing that he points to over and over again is Encanto, where he says Encanto did, you know, 94 million, I think, in theaters, just under 100 million. And then it went to Disney Plus and it skyrocketed. It was like mm-hmm. their most watched movie, the hit number one on the iTunes charts, whatever it might be. And he goes, look, there is an audience for kids and for adults on Disney Plus if we move our our movies here. So with Pixar, and especially the three Pixar films that this happened to, which was Soul in December 2020, Luca in June of 2021, and then most recently Turning Red uh, last month, I believe, or a month and a half ago, none of those movies are based on pre-existing IP. None of those movies are necessarily, I have to go to a theater to see this. And all of those movies are more likely to find a bigger audience on Disney Plus during the pandemic. So when we look at what's happening with Pixar, it is the most understandable, justifiable business move for the company right now. 
The issue, which again speaks to this overarching miscommunication issue that I think Bob Chapek currently has and is currently figuring out, is what this communicates to people inside the company and outside the company, which is Pixar, Academy Award-winning division that Bob Iger spent many, many, many months rebuilding a relationship with Steve Jobs to acquire in 2006, is now being seen as a direct-to-video bargain bin studio. And that is upsetting to people at Pixar, that is upsetting to fans of Pixar, and that is very questionable to people who kind of study the industry and are saying, if Pixar movies can't go to theaters, what does that say for any other type of movie that people are trying to make in the kids' entertainment space? But what I will add to this is the same move that Disney is making is the exact same move that Netflix is experimenting with. Where Netflix's big bet, Netflix decided two, three years ago that they were going to produce six animated kids films a year, which was more than Disney animation at the time. And they said, we think there is room for franchise growth and, and franchise building in the kids space on streaming. And Netflix decided to take that opportunity and try it. Netflix hasn't seen too much success with it. Their biggest kids movie came from Sony, and that's The Mitchells versus The Machines. And they acquired that from Sony in their partnership with the company. But Disney is now going, we have empirical data showing that actually we can build franchises, and it's going to save us a ton of money on marketing. It's going to save us a ton of money on printing, where it can actually just go directly here, and we can collect credit card data, and we can watch how our users are, are doing this. And it actually provides us more information about how we then market theme park passes, cruise tickets, whatever it might be. I think the bigger issue with all of that is that he forgets the creatives. And at Disney, even if you're moving into this moment of we're a streaming company, you know, you tell the street over and over and over again, it's fine that we're losing money in theaters because we're a streaming company and that's where our focus is. You have to communicate better with the actual team members and the creatives who are building this product who then you're saying we're going to build an entire franchise around. And that is where Bob Iger, people point to and say, he had this, the term they use a lot is emotional intelligence. He had this emotional intelligence to work with creatives and to have these conversations. Something like moving Turning Red to Disney Plus under Iger would have taken months and it would have been discussions with almost everyone, which makes almost everyone feel included. It's another benefit. And under Chapek, who's much more operational, streamlines it, takes three weeks, talks to the Pixar team and goes, this makes sense for us. We're going to move it. It just, we're going to figure it out. And that disconnect is really the core issue of what's happening with Disney. Here's what I kind of don't understand, though. I get the people, the theater is still fancy and people want to go to the theater. But if you just look at Encanto, which you mentioned already, but if you just look at Encanto, this thing is now an absolute sensation, right? That every song on the soundtrack is like going to number one. I literally hear the words time for dinner just like ringing through my head because of we don't talk about Bruno like all day and night because my kid is constantly watching this movie. Every parent I know is surrounded and inundated by this movie that would not have been the hit it was if it had languished in the theaters. This is because of streaming. And you said at the beginning, you can measure affinity in different ways at Parrot. Do you see that bump? Do you see, okay, this went to streaming and now the social media phenomenon behind Encanto has made it a different kind of hit? Absolutely. We saw exponential growth in demand the second it hit Disney+. Plus. The demand for it was pretty average when it came out in theaters. It was decent. What you'd expect to see from a Disney animation movie 
you expect to see a little bit more from Pixar. The minute it hit Disney+, Plus, it sat at number two globally behind only Spider-Man No Way Home for eight, nine days. And then the song We Don't Talk About Bruno became more of a, a meme. It became more of a fascination with people. It became an absolute, you know, stellar thing. And it continued to take off. So Disney's argument is that this can happen for every movie. And theatrical defenders will say, but it's one example, and there's not enough data to really show if this is the move in consumer behavior or if this is just a one-time deal. And I think where we get a lot of debates happening is you, you have a lot of analysts who point to theatrical attendance per capita declining over the last 20 years, which is true, but uh, attendance for certain films, which tend to be superhero sequels and scaries, I call them the three S's, tend to increase. Um, so what that means is people are going to theaters less, but they're going to see more of a certain type of movie. The argument from the other side of it is if studios remove 30% of their theatrical releases to move to streaming, which is what a lot of these companies are doing. How can you argue with the data that actually there is a decline if there's an opportunity to see if people will actually return to those movies if, it's you know, quote unquote, superhero fatigue, which isn't really proven, kicks in? And this is this ongoing debate for a company like Disney or even Paramount or Universal who have these streaming services that they can just take their films to and they're trying to build up these streaming services. It makes sense from their company's bottom line business perspective to move them to streaming and to have their best films available there as quickly as possible to bring more customers in and keep them there. The argument from the creative side, they still believe the only way to make franchises are in theaters. You know, you, sh you need to have the 45 days to give people a chance to see it and then go directly to the secondary window, which is DVD, Blu-ray, iTunes, and then you go to streaming from there. And we do see from a data perspective that there is longer term demand if it goes the more traditional route, but certain movies are just naturally going to perform better on streaming or they're going to be more valuable to a company via streaming than they are in a crowded theatrical marketplace, which is what we're getting back to. So I think with the Encanto argument, it was proof that if the movie is good, people will find it. And also, if it's available online, it becomes much easier to create earned media around it. And that was a big part of the Encanto success story. But the question for Pixar, for Disney Animation, for everyone else, is if we lose that theatrical placement, if the theaters just become, you know, Morbius and Spider-Man and whatever it might be, what does that mean for the future of our entertainment? How does that affect our value? Um, and that's something, again, that comes back to the miscommunication sector, where this is something a CEO with really strong emotional intelligence like Iger would have many, many conversations about this and try to figure out how to make everyone happy, shareholders, consumers, and employees. And I think Bob Chapek is much more focused on shareholders and consumers. I can ask a million more questions about Disney, but we need to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about what is going on with Warner Media and HBO Max. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on surprise The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G Pod wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. We're back with Julia Alexander. So let's talk about the other giant that is undergoing massive change, Warner Media. Mm-hmm. I feel like if we have any crossover listeners from the Verge Cassidy Coder, you will know that Julia and I spent hours of our lives talking about Warner Media with each other. <laughs> um, but the quick summary is AT&T bought Warner Media, then called Time Warner, for $85 billion. There was sort of an immediate culture clash because the phone company had bought the Hollywood studio. A bunch of people left. There were many layoffs. They did eventually launch HBO Max. They brought in Jason Kilar, who's the CEO of Warner Media. He is very much a tech person. He got in the same kind of talent fights because in the pandemic, he moved all of Warner's theatrical releases to HBO Max. All this, whatever, all this just chaos, nonstop chaos. AT&T gets a new CEO who's actually the guy who bought Warner Media, John Stanky. John Sankey, his first decision as CEO, to spin off all the stuff he was in charge of buying, including DirecTV, he's selling Warner Media for $43 billion. So AT&T bought this thing for $85. They're selling it for $43. What happened there? <laughs> it's a good question. The initial thought from John Stanky and the AT&T team was that if they could vertically integrate Warner Media into their division. They could use Warner Media to sell better phone plans. To, it, the idea was always to um, supplement the core product, which is a conversation I have with many of my clients, which is what is your core product that you were trying to build around with the introduction of a direct-to-consumer platform? Like, what is this thing you're trying to do? So AT&T thought, if we have Warner Media, this will help us in the same way that Comcast and NBC Universal worked as a company in 2011 when they emerged and are still together. It did not go as great as expected. It turns out that if you offer HBO Max on an assortment of platforms, an assortment of ways, people will not necessarily watch it on their phone via AT&T wireless. Um, they, may, they may watch it in, in different situations. So now Warner Media is merging with Discovery, which has split people on whether it's a good or a bad idea. But I think what makes the most sense for those two companies is they are perfectly complementary of each other. HBO Max tends to skew a little bit older and much more male. Discovery is a little bit older as well, but much more female. And the reality programming of Discovery can become younger if they focus on those creative pursuits. And HBO Max can figure out a way to go a little bit younger with the animation side that they're really trying to get into. And so if you combine those things, what you effectively have is cable light. It's it's basically like, here's where you can get all of your favorite entertainment. We're going to maybe do a little bit of sports in here. This is a conversation that David Zaslav, who's the CEO of Discovery, will have with his team. Jason Kylar, again, uh, CEO of Warner Media, famously said he did not want sports on the platform. They also own TNT. Sports on TNT is a very big deal to him and the company at large. But Zaslav seems much more inclined to say, we're going to bring sports onto the platform. So you got a little bit of sports. You got a little bit of news via CNN Plus, which just launched. And I'm sure that will roll into whatever the one platform is that they launch, which it will be Discovery Plus, HBO Max, and CNN Plus. And the question that comes out of this is, 
what do you price it at? And at what point are you just recreating cable, but in a much more fragmented and almost annoying way? Warner Media just launched CNN Plus. There's obviously a lot of drama at CNN. Jeff Zucker was uh, forced out of the company, lots of scandal, but they went ahead and launched a streaming service anyway. It's a weird one. It's not its own app. It's like a tab in the existing CNN app. It seems a little confused. What do you think is going on there? It's the type of app that gets launched for what we would refer to as super fans. ESPN Plus would be comparable. It is for a specific type of person who is interested in what I refer to as infotainment. It is Anthony Bourdain. It is kind of documentaries. It's daily shows from the CNN host that are not about CNN. And this is the main issue, right? You use the term plus for CNN. You would assume you get CNN and then some, but it's CNN minus. You don't get <laughs> CNN. You get you don't have live programming, really. You don't have access to the type of journalism that people turn to for CNN when there's you know a war, when there's a pandemic, when they want to get first up-to-the-minute news. And so what we will see happen with CNN+, Plus, I am positive, is it will exist for maybe about a year, maybe a little bit longer, and then it will kind of be thrown into the inevitable HBO Max, Discovery+, Plus, CNN bundle, and it will effectively be a um, not a net loss for Warner Media, but they will just kind of invest in it as part of additional content to the overarching bundle. It's not going to be its own standalone product. It's not going to be a big thing that they are talking about. I mentioned on Twitter at one point that it seemed like a way to retain talent as the talent wars are heating up when all of the different anchors are being talked to by all the different big companies um, to take on different roles and to be the face of of all these streaming services. And I heard from someone at CNN um, who told me that they felt it was the exact same thing and that's how many of the talent felt that they were being given the opportunity to do new shows that they couldn't do on CNN because there's a fixed schedule and it's a fixed type of audience and they could do it on CNN+. And the issue is that, I mean, that's great. That works better as part of supplementary news. News is additive. It is a heartbeat, but it is not what CNN Plus is. So it's a very confusing product that doesn't make a lot of sense, but will, I think, within a bigger bundle. But the thing that would make it make sense is CNN. Right. And so, and this is the whole issue when we talk about cable. I mean, the reason that CNN Plus can't carry CNN coverage is because the affiliate revenue that they make from CNN and all the rights agreements that they have with advertisers is for CNN. They cannot bring it to CNN Plus. It would be a whole headache for them. They can't do it. So until you figure out that situation, CNN Plus is basically just documentaries and and reality programming. They can give it the CNN logo. That's what they did at HBO Max. They just had CNN programming and added a CNN block to it. And that's what it should be within a larger bundle. The idea of CNN Plus without news doesn't make any sense to me. I actually still don't know what the difference between an HBO show is and an HBO Max show is. Like, they're labeled differently in the app, and I'm like, I don't, does that mean one's worse? And I think CNN Plus has the same problem. I always think of my mom in these situations. Would she care about the difference between HBO and HBO Max show? And she wouldn't. Like, and a lot of people don't. A lot of people watch Station Eleven and thought it was an HBO show, and they're cut, and then they figure out it's an HBO Max show. People watched uh, Euphoria and thought it was an HBO Max series, and it was an HBO show. Where this really matters is to the executives who oversee them, <laughs> and are kind of like, that's an HBO show. It's very different from an HBO Max thing, and um, so it's important to them. But I think for the general consumer, the inherent value of just having all of that programming 
is better than trying to figure out who it belongs to. Eventually it just becomes, well, FX shows are on Hulu and I assume they're Hulu and HBO shows are on HBO Max, so I assume they're HBO Max. As long as customers are paying, the top CEOs and COOs, they don't really care whether it's HBO or HBO Max. It's all being streamed. Oh, it's super annoying, because especially because they won't allow the Apples and the Rokus and the Amazons of the world to build an interface on top of all these apps, right? Like some of them will, some of them won't, and you're still jumping between apps. I think a lot about how we're getting back to things feeling really bloated in a way that when streaming was first coming out, the promise of it was this idea of a la carte that you could not get via cable. That cable was you pay 100 and whatever it might be. That's how long it's been since I had cable. <laughs> I don't know how much cable is these days, but you, you'd pay for the, the whole suite and it would be easy. There's a lot of things at, in, one, in one specific setting, but it's bloated. You have 500 channels and you're using maybe 40 of them. It, was a, it just didn't feel good and you couldn't get out of it. You know, trying to call a cable company to do anything with your plan was a tedious affair. So with streaming, and especially with Netflix, it was this idea of, hey, you can just pay 10 bucks a month and you're going to get a bunch of different things, but you really control what you want. You're choosing to buy into it. It's, it's your choice. And now with the consolidation happening and the conglomerates coming back in, they're basically saying, well, we have all these different products that generate revenue and we want to kind of bundle them in some way, whether that's creating one platform that's an internal bundle or or the Disney streaming services bundle aspect where they're going, you pay $14, $15 and you get all three services, which is Hulu, ESPN plus Disney plus. But that creates a really annoying and frustrating and disingenuous experience for consumers that almost makes you say like, I'm going to go to Fubo TV or YouTube TV or Hulu Fly TV and just pick up one of those packages. And the only problem with that, the only problem is that these companies are no longer making good television for TV. They're saying if you want the really good series that everyone's talking about, you have to subscribe to our streaming services. And that is where this, this moment is going to come. This moment of friction is going to happen where you have your live TV for sports fans mostly who are basically saying, I'm going to subscribe because I want sports and news. It's why Rupert Murdoch kept Fox Sports Network and Fox News when he sold his company to Disney. But on the other side of it, you have all these people are saying, I want to watch the show. There's too many streaming services and I can't get any of them through a cable bundle if I go to get cable. So it's a it's it's not great right now for consumers. There's parts of the landscape right now that are phenomenal, but it's getting really complicated and bloated and tedious again. I'm definitely paying more for television than I was when I paid for every channel mm-hmm. for from Verizon Fios, right? Like I just paid for every channel and I thought I was nuts, but I was like, well, now I have every channel. I'm just paying this one company for this bundle, but it has every channel. Now it's like, well, I'm paying YouTube TV. I'm paying for HBO Max. I'm paying for Netflix. I'm, for a minute, I had to pay for Discovery Plus because there was one documentary that <laughs> my wife wanted to watch, and then I had set a reminder on my phone to cancel it. Like, that's where we're at, right? Like, I'm just actively churning on and off these services. But, like, a combined Warner Media Discovery, yep, it might be cable light. But when we talk about tech companies, when we talk about these apps, like the apps, like HBO Max is not well known for being a great app. Hmm. And this is when they talk about being a tech company, they're still just talking about being an app, right? And owning your user journey, if you want to call it that, when you load the app, you're going to load it because you want to watch one thing. And then they're going to recommend another thing and then another thing. And they're going to market you a third thing that you'll watch tomorrow. And they control your experience the way that a cable company used to control your experience on a cable box. 
but they don't seem that invested in making those experiences great. And that is like the, even Disney plus is like a fine app, but I would not call it a great app. And it just seems like Netflix for all of its various troubles, because the market is totally saturated and they're still looking for growth and they might add ads or do games. Like for all that Netflix stuff, they still have the best app that does the best job of showing you things you might want to watch. You hit the nail on the head. And also, you know this from my time at The Verge, where I would complain to you many times about UI and UX on streaming services. It's an issue. And it's an issue that is not necessarily getting better. What happened is a lot of these companies came in after Netflix and they realized Netflix is making money on our content. We would like to own our content on our own platform. That's a decent thought. That's, yeah, we would like to own that customer relationship, especially if we have other products like uh, Comcast has their product, Disney has other stuff, you know, they have other things going on. The issue is they were content suppliers. And so they said, we will supply the content, we will make it, and the carriers, you carry it to people. It's on you. That's your thing now. Now they have to own both routes. Not only are they the content suppliers, they're carrying it to people. And if they don't carry well, if the distribution does not work well, people will notice and they will tweet and they will say things and <laughs> it becomes a whole issue for the companies. I will tweet at just any time a streaming <laughs> app is bad. You just watch yeah. me. It's, I mean, I literally started a hashtag, but it was like, but why? And people were, I told people to use it to express their frustrations with UI and UX on streaming platforms because it's such an ongoing issue that's so noticeable. What is going to happen, my prediction, is that the tech will not necessarily get better. It will be usable and people will pay for it because they want the content and they will just deal with it. But what will happen going forward, to your point earlier, what you said, you, you're just churning like monthly or whatever, you're not using it. That is going to become much more of an issue when these companies look at the potential lost revenue that they're getting from password sharing that is happening from monthly churn. And so eventually you just start seeing things slowly creep up towards cable. Content budgets get more expensive, so they have to increase prices yearly in order to continue paying for the content and make revenue and, and appease the street. They go into maybe annual lock-ins because they don't want people churning every month. They prevent you from sharing passwords in a way that has not been really seen up to this point in the streaming space. And then eventually, once the households with cable drop below 50 million, you know, the pay TV households drop below 50 million households, it then becomes a moment where a lot of these companies can go, okay, do we shift our sports focus and our news focus directly to streaming? At that point, when we look at the incremental cost that that creates, you get to cable. You're, you, you just recreate <laughs> cable, but in a much more fragmented space where they get to control the customer relationship. And so I think that's this moment everyone is waiting for where it's that fun balance game of do I go back to cable where things are, but there's no good television anymore, mm -hmm. all the good TV is on the streaming side, or do I just wait for this next evolution where eventually I'll pay for one or two or three different streaming services, but it's basically three cable packages and it kind of has everything I need, but I'm not happy. And the unspoken, <laughs> <laughs> the unspoken player in this moment is Amazon. Where Amazon goes, hey, part of the reason we work as a company is because a lot of these industries became much more fragmented and terrible to use and terrible to navigate. And we can offer things as one package and we'll come in and we'll underprice certain things because that's how Amazon has done it, and, you know, to build up Prime. And then Amazon can come in and say, we have good TV. We're going to have a bunch of sports. They have baseball. They have football to an extent. And Amazon gets to come in and say, also, you're going to be able to shop and you're going to be able to stream Twitch and you're going to be able to listen to music or whatever you want to do with it. And that's the package that I think more people will gravitate towards, which is if I'm going to pay you for a bunch of this stuff, what else do I get with it? I like how the theory of the case for Amazon is like, well, Amazon's really good at predatory pricing. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, we'll see how long that lasts. Although their merger with MGM did get approved uh, by the various uh, regulatory authorities. Uh, my favorite line was the European Union approved it, and they were like, "Well, MGM isn't." must-have programming (laughs) so you can have it, which is a harsh burn from the Europeans. They actually said that as an actual quote. Let's talk about sports. You brought it up. It is the piece of the bundle that you cannot really disrupt into on-demand, right? Live sports is live sports. People are going to pay for it. The gambling industry that is now legal across the country is exploding. There's just a lot of money and a lot of attention in live sports. If you have live sports and you have the stuff people want, people are going to subscribe to your service. Amazon, you just said they've got Thursday night football for the next 11 years. They've got some baseball. Apple TV Plus is going to have Friday night baseball. There's constant rumors that Disney will spin off ESPN, but then they're not going to because why would they? They've had to reinvent ESPN 9,000 times. Uh, Julie and I are both football fans. We text each other about football a lot. All the football announcers just got huge new deals to go to different services and platforms because the the money is insane. What's going on with sports? Are people just buying and selling the rights so they can add subscribers? Is this a real business that's going to make sense? Where do you see it landing? If we look at why sports was important to Linear, is that sports was the easiest way to bring in new customers because people will seek out their favorite teams, fanatics will seek out every version of a game that they can, and so sports became the foundation for a lot of these cable networks and a lot of broadcast, of course, and it still works. I think what we're looking at is the league saying, we don't know where we're going to generate the most revenue, and we are open to new discussions. So when the NFL is saying, we have different games and different packages that we can sell, and Amazon is worth more money than God three times over, and says, we can bid however much they're going to bid on something, and the other companies just can't, and for Amazon, it's a dime in a bucket, same as Apple, It becomes a really great place, especially for leagues like the MLB, where the MLB has viewership issues. They're not pulling in good ratings, but it's still America's sport. There's still an audience for it. And so if you're the league, you know you can get more money out of Amazon and Apple than you are out of the broadcasters for the most part. You still want to be in most homes because that is still important. You still want to be in the bars. You still don't trust their tech delivery. You're still concerned about, is this going to lag? Is this just not going to be a thing? And then we alienate more viewers. But you're at a point where you're like, we want to experiment, so we're going to give you some of these deals. And if you're Apple and Amazon, you're saying, we also would like to experiment and see if this is a business opportunity for us. For Apple, we're going to buy into a low-stakes league. We're going to have some baseball. We're going to see if there's an audience for sports. We're going to see if this is something that we want in our Apple TV Plus package. You know, the question about what Apple TV Plus does for the services sector for Apple to the Apple One bundle, and then to a larger extent, Apple's core product, which is hardware and kind of keeping people within that ecosystem, is still relatively unclear. Can I tell you my theory? Yeah. Apple services revenue is almost entirely in-app purchases and video games. That That's not fancy. So they make TV shows so they can, when they talk about services, they can show pictures of Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon. I don't know what that I don't know what that business is. Does that business have I mean it's not broken out, so we can't tell. But we no. do know that most of the revenue is in app purchases and video games. Well, and you I mean, that's exactly it though. When we look at Apple and Amazon, we talk about them as major competitors in the SVOD space because they are major competitors no matter what space they want to be in. They are huge companies. But they've never broken out what uh, Amazon Prime Video or Apple TV Plus do for their companies. The last time we heard about Amazon Prime Video, Jeff Bezos was still CEO, and he said, 
at least uh, of 175 million subscribers, everyone's watched at least one movie. And I was like, <laughs> I hope that they're watching at least one movie. And if if the if the theory is that Amazon Prime Video is a way to sell additional retail products, sure, but also reduces churn for Amazon Prime, that has never actually been proven by the company in any meaningful public way. So it's hard to really state that. The continued bet on sports from Amazon without that information is interesting because it clearly there's something that Amazon is seeing from the sports package, whether it's advertising, whether it is additional retail purchases when people come to watch it, whatever it might be, um, whether it is lower churn. The fact that they're continuously invested in different leagues seems to signify that there's some success there. But I do think what's going to happen with sports is that it is going to become, as I've been saying in this podcast, much more fragmented, much more difficult to navigate, and much more annoying for fans. If we think about the most recent Amazon deal with the Yankee games, which is Amazon is going to host 21 Yankee games exclusively, which means that if you use Yes Network in the tri-state area, you cannot watch it. You have to go to Amazon to watch these games. That gets really annoying for people who essentially are going to have to use a service like Just Watch to find out where their game is. It just sounds like sports is going to get more fragmented. By a large amount, it's getting more fragmented at the major level, the national level, and then it's also getting more fragmented within the actual RSN space and the regional sports network space. Bally, who owns a bunch of different regional sports networks, was going to launch its own app. So you'd pay basically $20, $30 to them to get some access to some regional sports. And you'd still need ESPN for Monday Night Football or NBC and CBS. Or if you're trying to cut the cord entirely, you go to Peacock, you go to Paramount Plus. And so you end up paying more for arguably less of what you were actually getting within cable. But the idea is that as pay TV households diminish, this is eventually going to happen. And the theory is that these companies are just waiting for that to drop below, you know, 50 million, 45 million households before they start saying, let's migrate everything to streaming and the leagues will get behind them. That just sounds like my biggest frustration with sports streaming right now is that over the air antennas look better for sports than any app that I can currently subscribe to. Like sports look bad on on YouTube TV. They look bad on the Fox sports app. They look bad on Amazon. And then if you're in a major city, you can just put up an antenna and get the broadcast. Great. And I understand that there's like a huge business dynamic happening here where you're going to say, okay, we've, we've bled this stone dry. And now we're going to migrate everyone over to streaming But it seems like the lack of emphasis on the product itself is the actual biggest problem. Because if you told me, okay, you can get NFL Sunday ticket and all the games will look great, the best they can look in 4K, whatever, I would pay almost any amount of money for that product. But no one will sell that to me right now. No, it's a diminishing product. It's whenever we watch it, you know, in my own household, was working with the Google Chromecast with TV and the 4K was not great. I don't even know if there was, but it, it was not great how it looked. So I upgraded to the new Apple TV. The 4K looks great on television in terms of with TV shows and movies, but it's still, you're not doing great with the sports when you run YouTube TV through the Apple set box. And the situation with that is you end up going to a bar 
And you're like, I'm just going to go watch this or I'm going to go to a friend's house who has cable and you're still spending more money on it. The idea seems to be we don't necessarily need to worry about the how this looks because we have the content exclusively so people will have to come to us regardless. Almost like you're taking people hostage in the situation where like I'm going to pay for this because I want to watch the game or whatever it might be. But the lack of focus on the actual tech side of things, on the visuals of it, the having a nice quality game. There's room in there for competitors to kind of come in and say, we're going to focus really strongly on this. And then we're also going to figure out the right situations and kind of build our way up that way. You could look at ESPN on the Disney side. Disney could invest into the tech side and try to make it more of a better experience. But we don't see any actual investment being made here. And this is a conversation I have with friends in the industry who both work at these companies and people who don't. And it's always, well, we have the money for it. We could go into it. We could invest more, but we're investing everything in the rights, into content rights, into content acquisition. And so all the rest of it kind of gets left on the side because they just assume people will show up. Is that because all the the deals are exclusive? Like I would just compare that to music, for example. (laughs) The music industry moved to streaming. There was a huge rush of exclusives that everyone sort of realized, oh, this is horrible. Like, if you're on Apple Music and you get the exclusives, that's right. But if the exclusives on Spotify, that's horrible. The artists hated it because their audiences were getting diminished. They didn't like being used as marketing for services in that way. Eventually, exclusives went away. Everything's sort of everywhere now. But Apple competes with spatial audio, or Tidal has the highest quality, or Amazon has its own version of both of those things. There's market differentiation and quality there because there are no exclusives. It sounds like the opposite in streaming where there's all kinds of exclusives. So there's really no emphasis on how sports look. Well, and sports fundamentally gets into the situation where if you're going to try to pirate a game, if you're going to try and look for a live feed of a game, it is by no means impossible. And Google has taken measures to make it more difficult, Um, but it's still relatively easy. It shows up on like the fourth page of Google. There's a link that's like, watch this game live. (laughs) And so you can, and the quality is not great. But if someone really just wants to watch that game, it takes an effort to go find it, but they can do it. With music, if you can't find an album, it's relatively simple to download it from somewhere to have someone send you the links. Like that's not necessarily a big hurdle with the games. It still feels like a challenge. Even if it's Google a bull, there's still this challenge to get really good quality live streaming happening with the game. And they know that you're, you're only going to get, you know, one Packers versus Vikings game. And that's going to be on a Monday. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I use those teams for a reason. Um, You're only going to get Packers versus Vikings on Monday. They know that the fans are going to come out and find a way to watch this game. They know that they're going to pay for a way to do it. They know that they can own that relationship, that there's only one route to go through. With music, yes, they have to find different ways to differentiate themselves. So it becomes all about the quality of what you're streaming. But it's much easier to go around the hurdles to go get that album. And really, to your point about the diminishing the audience for artists, that's a bigger deal when artists are like, hey, we want you to listen to our music so we can get the most people who come out to our concerts, to buy our T-shirts. With the NFL, they want the most people to watch their games as well, but they're pretty guaranteed that if they, you know, Roger signs for the Packers for another four years, <laughs> they'll sell more jerseys. People are still going to go to those games and they're still going to be able to sell Monday night football or Thursday night football at the highest price, the highest bidder. So they sell exclusivity because there's still real value in that. Julia is just trolling me with Packers references. <laughs> That's all that's happening here. <laughs> um, so that kind of brings me to my last big overall question, which is, 
okay, here's the shape of the industry. You've got the big legacy players like Disney and Warner Media trying to shift their businesses, reorg them into being streaming first platforms. That's expressed as an app. You've got newer players like Apple and Amazon. They're buying movies or winning Oscars. That's expressed as an app. You've got the future of live sports expressed as God knows how many apps. Why aren't the apps better? Like, I know we talked about it a little bit earlier, but it just seems like, okay, this is the first point of differentiation, right? You're saying the entire future of your business is in this screen. Why is there so little emphasis on, okay, this screen should be easier to use or the tech aspect of how this works should be top of the line? Like, do they feel the competitive pressure or is it just hey, we can get you one with a buzzy new show and then keep you with the catalog. That's the business and the app is just table stakes. There is a very specific reason Netflix has two headquarters and one is in Silicon Valley and one is in LA. And there is the idea at Netflix that is the basis of their company that you cannot have the creativity without the tech distribution and the the powerful tech arm to help provide a great experience, to make people want to stay within that app, to make people want to use it. I mean, that is what gives Netflix a major advantage over its competitors. And there is a reason why a lot of these Hollywood companies are not in Silicon Valley and they're working out of Burbank or they're working out of New York and they're kind of hyper-focusing their streaming, uh, the oversight team, the executive team with creative development and creative executives. And so their focus is inherently on the creative product and their focus for investment is inherently on let's have the best rights. Let's spend $100 million on getting the J.J. Abrams show because if we don't, it will go to someone else. None of that matters if people can't access the app. And so what we see with HBO Max, when they first launched and it was like, hey, we'd love to use your app, we literally cannot use it. You get them, all of a sudden, they're like, we have to totally revamp this app. You know, there's a reason Disney bought BamTech, and it was like, we can't build the tech arm for it. We're going to buy this this one that, you know, HBO Now was built on top of, and hopefully that works for us. But unless they increase investment into that area, eventually, at the rate that they're spending their money on, the content is all going to be... There's going to be a hit show every week from a different platform, but that's not necessarily going to be a thing that keeps your customers coming back. It's not going to make sure that they are spending more time within an app. Netflix has hyper-built its algorithm to make sure that you are having the best time in the app and then you're staying there and you're finding stuff that you didn't even know you wanted. And so it feels like a great experience. And unless the other ones do it, it just becomes tedious to use and there'll be so much competition and so many more things to do including outside of streaming, right, including Fortnite and YouTube and whatever else it might be, and TikTok, that you just kind of lose that engagement. And if you lose the engagement and if you lose your subscribers' adoration for what you're doing, it doesn't matter. It's an app at the end of the day. The hardest part is getting them to open the app. And if you make it difficult, they're just not going to open the app. Okay, so let me flip that on you. I would say Netflix has the best technology. The app is the best designed. They've been at it longer One of the theses of Decoder at large, and one that you've come back to repeatedly here, is the distribution affects what you make inherently. I would say Netflix's distribution model has dramatically impacted the way Netflix shows work. They're all kind of bloated. They all have like that one episode in the middle where you can definitely just check your phone. Like, this is like a Netflix series to me. I should disclose that we're working on a Netflix series, so I'm trying not to do that on a Netflix series. But that's like Netflix, right? I would not say they have the most talked about series out there. They do not have 
the big prestige TV wins at the rate they used to. All that stuff is happening on an HBO Max or a Hulu or Apple TV with Severance, even if those apps aren't as good. Is that because the distribution hasn't yet affected the creative? Because that would be my my theory, is that because HBO Max is just kind of fine, they're still just making great TV shows. And the second it becomes streaming, it'll get that kind of like streaming TV bloat. I think your theory is mostly right. We are at a point, when you look at something like HBO, HBO is going to have week after week good television. So the people who are using HBO Max for HBO are going to use it regardless because they were using HBO. Like It's the same kind of thing. Even if the app experience for them is bad, they're HBO diehards. The issue is you have this new generation of kids who are coming up, and they are used to having too much television, but it's good. And they're used to having products that work. And they have it through Netflix, they have it through TikTok, they have it through YouTube. It's these algorithms that really, really know them um, and recommend what they want. But at the same time, what we need to really look at with these streaming services is how do you engage your audience beyond just them coming in for that one episode or two episodes a week? So at that point, especially if you're getting into an ad-supported version of these apps, which we didn't have time to cover, but you know, Netflix is now saying never say never to ads. Disney Plus is going to include an ad-supported tier now. When the advertisers are like, how often are people using your apps? How, where do we want to be here? What shows are they really watching? What shows are they kind of turning off halfway through? That's when the distribution arm is just as important as the content arm. Because if all of these networks make good television, which they've proven that they can, and they increase their content budget to all compete with each other, it kind of becomes a dime a dozen, where it's like Netflix has a good show this week, Disney Plus has a good show next week, and so people cancel whenever they're not necessarily interested in it for a month at a time, they come back to it, but there's no love for a lot of these services. There's love for some of the content. As that content increases to your point about it becoming bloated, now you really have to figure out a way to diversify your product and to make it seem like it's a better experience, whether that is adding a shuffle button that actually works properly, whether that is <laughs> you know, adding cool bumpers, whether that is figuring out a way to let friends recommend things within the app. All of those product details on top of having an app that works and having a distribution platform that works as a discovery platform, that gives you the edge. And that makes people say, I want to spend more time in the app and find my new favorite show here, um, not necessarily there. So I think it, it's it's a game of, yes, as long as you have the content, people will come. This is the argument for theatricality. If you put the movie in theaters and it's a good movie, people will go out to see it. They will go to it. But in a space where it's online and it's all apps and you're competing with other apps to get people to open it and spend more time there, now it becomes how do I make this app feel really personal, really fun on top of having good content? Okay, last question. And I feel like we could do another full hour on this one, but I'll let's try. All the features you've described could also live at the operating system level, right? They could live on the Roku box. They could live on the Apple TV or the Amazon Fire Stick or whatever. And they don't, right? Like they, these companies want to build those features. Apple, I think very famously has an entire app called the TV app that it cannot just make the interface of the Apple TV because Netflix and other services won't integrate with it. They want you in their app, not in Apple's app. Roku has some universal search features but it can't do friend recommendations across services or that social stuff because the app partners will freak out and get mad at Roku and threaten to leave. Like at some point, what you really want is you want to buy a license to content from all these different networks. And then you want to have a interface that helps you 
look at all the stuff you have access to. And in the middle is all these companies saying, well, actually, we want you in our app. Do you see that flipping at any point? We've been talking about the cable bundle coming back so much that I'm like, why doesn't Roku just make the cable bundle and I'll pay them? The aggregators have a lot of power, too. Think about how important it is for Netflix to have the Netflix button on the Roku remote. or um, I mean, Google obviously puts the YouTube button on its remote. But the idea that you have it there automatically brings people to the streaming service. They don't have to think about it. It's automatically opened. That's huge real estate. It's something that's very valuable to them. The idea that this would kind of occur within the software space and give you know Roku more control or Google or Apple, whoever it might be, I think... On the one hand, I can see it going that way where they kind of say this is the best way for us to continue growing. This is the best way for us to give consumers the best experience. And so we are going to work within these platforms and these operating systems, to your point, to make this work a specific way. On the other hand, I mean, this was the issue with Amazon and Roku and NBC when they were trying to figure out their situation. It's proprietary data. They want to control. I mean, I know you know this. They want to control all the data with their customers. They don't want to give up any form of ad inventory. And that's going to be the big issue. The big issue is if Roku says we will do this, but we want 10% of your ad inventory. That's a really hard sell for NBC Universal and for Paramount, who specifically work with advertisers to deliver within their own app and to control how that flow is happening. So until you're, that side of the equation is willing to say, okay, we're going to take a beat because we think for the betterment of our platform and of our app and for our business, we think we need to work well with our other partners and within this bigger kind of ecosystem. Until that happens, you're just going to have a lot of silos because they want to operate within silos because they think that's better for their business and for their customers, which is not necessarily inherently true. If anything, the data points to it not being true. But I mean, that's a that's a big conversations with many, many, many teams, all of who have a very specific stake in that <laughs> in that fight. That's true. All right. We've gone over. What do you think happens next? What should people be looking out for? The thing I've been saying a lot, and I don't know if it'll actually come true, is I would look at them getting rid of the month to month payment. I think the next thing that's going to happen over the next two years is we will go from these colloquial streaming wars, which is a terrible term, uh, I always say streaming race, to the retention race. They will hit saturation in the United States and Canada, which is a primary market for all of them, as they expand outward and try to make sense of South America and India and, and different very important countries and territories. In order to figure that out, they have to introduce cheaper plans in those different territories because they're mobile-first territories. And in order to do that, they have to rely on the revenue coming from the United States and Canada. And they can't do that if they're losing a lot of customers because it's oversaturated and easy to cancel. So my suspicion is you'll see some experimentation within the payment structure month to month. At the same time, I say that, and that would cause a lot of people to automatically cancel, I assume. But... I do think there's a lot of potential lost revenue there that the companies are looking at and thinking of how can we keep people in for longer than a month at a time. So you'd get a discount if you stay on for three months or a year or something. Disney learned that throughout the if they use the bundle, the subscribers who subscribe to the bundle are more likely to stay on longer, if anything, just because now they've got three services and it's more complicated to disengage from all of them. <laughs> um, and so why not do it at three months at a time? Same kind of theory. Yeah. All right, Julia, this is great. It's always great to talk to you about streaming. We'll have to have you back on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks again to Julia Alexander for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. You can hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, give us that five-star review. 
And as always, here's a secret. If you tweet at me about the show, I will almost certainly retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Kelly Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. Our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.